Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. With over 1 billion, with a B, in claims paid, Trupanion has you covered. Whether you're a dedicated breeder, a loving owner, or both. Trupanion is also the first pet insurance provider to offer a special breeding rider that you can add to your coverage. That way, you know your dogs are covered from common health concerns associated with breeding and whelping, like emergency C-sections, for example. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm super excited. You guys might have caught the special sneak peek into our Pure Dog Talk patrons after dark that we did a few weeks back with Melina Martini, who is a canine behavior specialist who focuses on separation anxiety. And it was an amazing conversation. And I wanted her to come back and talk to us about some myth busting around anxiety, separation anxiety, genetics and heritability of anxieties and fears, all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of knowledge that Melina can bring us, and I am super, super excited to have her join us today. So welcome, Melina. Well, thank you. Oh my gosh, that's such a lovely introduction. And as you know, I could talk about this stuff all day long. Right. We could talk for months on this. We literally could talk for months. And so I'm so happy to be here because whatever information I can share and people can glean about whether it's their own dog or a bred dog or another family member's dog. We'd love to be able to share some knowledge. Well, there's a lot of great information that has the potential to be life-changing for the animal. And since that's what we actually care about, there you go. There you go. So myth busting, you ready? I'm so ready. All right. Is my dog just being a jerk? How many of us want to say, you know what? He really is naughty. He's really a jerk. Here's the important thing. And oh my gosh, if you take nothing And this away. is specifically about separation anxiety. Specifically, yes. Because sometimes dogs are jerks. Yes. <laughs> but in this particular case, when we're talking with regard to separation anxiety, your dog is not being a jerk, nor are they being spiteful, nor are they just angry at you because you're not spending enough time with them. All of that discussion. That is not what's happening. What is happening is so important that we understand from a compassion and empathy standpoint, as well as from a training standpoint, these dogs are panicked. This is a true phobia to being left alone. And I want to remind people that by definition, phobias tend to be rather irrational, Right. Or at least irrational to the person that's not experiencing them. So let's think about people. Let's think about people and compare it. Sheldon knocking on Amy's door three times. These are compulsions, right? You're not going to change that behavior just because. Just because. That's right. 
And you're right, thinking about human behaviors. Like I always mention that I am not joking about this. You know, you think that I'm making this up, but I am deathly phobic of spiders and most creepy crawly things. Right. And there is no way you could sit me down and explain to me that they're actually good for the environment and they're eating bugs and da 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 da. You know what? No, no, get it out of my sight before I scream, cry, and potentially wet my pants. Or okay? the house down. Just burn, burn the, the house, house down, down, that stuff. Yes. Legit. But that's how dogs feel in certain instances. It's exactly. When we're talking about actual separation anxiety, this experience and their perception is truly that this is an emergent and terrifying situation being left alone. And I think it's so important that we understand that for a number of reasons, including like how we address it, because we have to remember we're addressing a fear, not a naughty being a jerk dog. That's very different. Right. And I think that's so important. And I think you talked about spiders. I think about my claustrophobia, oh, totally. which I think is actually kind of a similar thing that yes. the separation anxiety dog, particularly that I have dealt with, that it felt like my claustrophobia. That's exactly right. And claustrophobia is a really good example. There's nothing that I could explain to you about the fact that you won't run out of air and that you're not going to be harmed. Your internal mechanisms of racing heart and sweaty palms and inability to hyperventilating, hyperventilation, all that stuff. I can't just knock you off the side of the head and say, stop it. And I'm a person where you can actually explain it, not a dog. That's exactly right. Okay. So I think that's a super important place to start when we talk about separation anxiety. I agree. Okay. So our next myth-busting opportunity. So did I cause this? Did I make him have separation anxiety? What up with that? What up with that? So I think there's a lot of things that we can do that might influence a dog that already has separation anxiety. Feed the beast, if you will. Feed the beast, if you will. That's right. But you'd be surprised that it's not as much stuff as we think of. And one of the things that I sort of love to hang my hat on when I talk to groups and talk to owners and talk to breeders and talk to vets is not just me from what I've seen in the last 20 years of working with this, But also the research, which is just really prevalent in the last four decades with regards to separation anxiety, actually indicates to us that spoiling, and this is how they represent spoiling, letting a dog sleep on the bed, letting a dog on the furniture, giving them lots of treats or feeding them extra goodies or taking them on car rides with us, all these sorts of activities, which in my head are part of having a family member my best friend. I feed him. What can I say? (laughs) Yeah. What can I say? And I feed him yummy things. And if I want to snuggle on the couch, we do. And so none of those things are either causational or correlational for separation anxiety. And I want to remind people that those are two very different things, causation and correlation, Mm -hmm. but neither, neither of those two things are indicated when we're doing these quote unquote spoiling behaviors. Okay. And the reason I say that, and the reason it's so important is everybody needs to understand, boy, when you have a dog with separation anxiety, you are going to get every naysayer in the universe coming after you. (laughs) I can guarantee it. And they're going to say, it is your fault. 
And you know, I just want people to absolve themselves from that guilt and know that they did not create an animal with separation anxiety by letting them snuggle on the couch with him. Eat popcorn and watch Netflix. That's right. And how are you watching my house? Because that's about <laughs> what I've been doing all day. Okay. So then on the flip side of this conversation, are there things that we can do as the adult in the room, <laughs> as the human with opposable thumbs and everything to encourage, discourage, feed the beast, not feed the beast? Are there behaviors that we can modify about ourselves in working with these dogs? Yeah, I think so. I want to just sort of remind everybody that every dog is such an individual. They're all unique. We know we're generalizing. We we're get that. generalizing. <laughs> you know, I can't help but caveat myself there. But for the most part, I think that taking situations wherein the dog might start to experience some distress Mm-hmm. and potentially exacerbating it. And one of the things that we were talking about right before we started recording was, you know, hi, Poopsie, I'm so upset that I have to leave you. Love you, love you, kissy, kissy. And then on the return is, oh, sweetie, I, oh, I hope you've been okay. I hope that it doesn't sound like I'm, you know, making fun of dog owners. But what I'm saying here is creating such a contrast Right. Between home with the dog and leaving the dog. Right. Can actually help sort of, as you mentioned, feed that beast. Feed the beast. And so I know we talked a little bit in the after dark that we did for the patrons group. We talked a little bit about, and you have a special language that you use to talk about this, and I'm not going to get it right because I'm not in the cool group, but like low key leaving, like there's a thing that you talk about with that that helps not feed the beast, things that we can do to not feed this challenge that we're experiencing. I agree. When I talk about nonchalant exits and entries, that sort of thing, what's interesting, we have to remember that dogs are masters of discrimination. Yes. They know when we're leaving. Mm -hmm. And so taking an extra five minutes to give them kissy sounds and leaven can just put more emphasis on the exit. And so I tell people, your dog has figured out, you put on your shoes, you've grabbed your backpack, got your keys in your hand. Your dog is fully aware that you're about to leave. (laughs) You don't have to tell them anything. And I know as human beings, we have a propensity to want to say, all right, be good or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. Go take a nap is what I tell mine. (laughs) Yeah. Have a snooze, babe. I'll be back. No big deal. Yeah. Let's not create an over exuberant party upon exit and return. Yes. I love that. So here in our myth busting, your dog's not just being bad. He actually has a phobia and you didn't cause this. This is a thing and you can maybe modify it, but you didn't cause it. So let's talk about what maybe does cause it. All right. Important thing to note with all these decades of research, the actual cause of separation anxiety is still rather ambiguous. We haven't pinpointed that this exact thing, whether genetic or environmental, is going to undeniably cause separation anxiety. Right. Having said that, in the past several years, there has been some fantastic research about the heritability of separation anxiety, which we know fears are genetically inspired in many cases. Mm -hmm. So it's not a far stretch to think, 
Oh, okay. Well, separation anxiety therefore could be as well. Right. And listeners will remember the podcast that I did on literally the heritability of fear. Oh, wonderful. I think that heritability in genetics and epigenetics. Epigenetic. Oh, I'm so glad you huge, mentioned that. Huge pieces there. So follow up on that for me. So genetics wise, in the last few years, they have actually identified a haplotype. So basically haplotypes are sort of a genetic marker for generic terms, I guess, mm-hmm. that is specifically in accordance with separation anxiety. Interesting. But here is the important aspect because you mentioned the epigenetics, right? Just because that particular haplotype or those genetic markers exist does not mean that the behavior problem is going to occur. And that's where the epigenetics play a role because these are like toggle switches. Yes. So that toggle switch may remain off for the lifetime of that animal, but there are some environmental influences that could flip that toggle switch. Speak to some of those because breeders, this is important. All of us that are listening, many of my listeners are breeders. We think about this. We look at the bitch we're going to breed and we're like, well, I don't know, man, you know, it's a little sketch. And am I not going to breed this bitch because of X, Y, or Z? So if we think about that, what are some of these toggle switches that are going to add to the pre-existing haplotype? Yeah. And that's a big question. And I don't know that we have the exact answer. I think we know that there's a lot of environmental influences that typically are sort of trauma related that bring forth fears in addition to potentially separation anxiety. And one of the reasons that I love that discussion about epigenetics is we see dogs all of the time that have been like happily being left alone for years and years and years. And then the owners move to a new location whether it's from the city to the country or the country to the city or the city to the city, doesn't matter, but it's a brand new environment for that animal. And that toggle switch, if you will, suddenly is thrown. We've also seen sort of traumatic events happen. For instance, there are a lot of comorbid fears that go hand in hand with separation anxiety. And one of them is noise phobia. And so you can imagine that if I'm a breeder that's giving a potentially predisposed dog to an owner in, let's just say Florida, where there's a million thunderstorms and tornadoes and all that stuff. And that animal is not only potentially going to have separation anxiety, but also has some severe noise noise sensitivity and, and thunderstorm phobia. That might be the, no pun intended, perfect storm. <laughs> Good one. Couldn't help it. Golf clap. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I do think, Melina, that And we talked a little bit about, you know, dogs react to barometric pressure in thunderstorms, but there's noise sensitivity is one that they've actually studied a lot. A lot. Gun dogs, for example, that have noise sensitivity to gunfire that are fine with gunfire, but then a thunderstorm undoes them. So are they reacting to the noise or are they reacting to the barometric pressure or what exactly is their phobia in that instance? And in that instance, what's so interesting, and we don't know, we don't know chicken or the egg there, but what we do know is that fear has such a tendency to bleed out quickly. And what I mean by that is 
fear can, let's say there's a traumatic event, the dog's okay with gunshots, but then thunderstorm happens and they're reacting to maybe the noise and the barometric, we don't know, whatever they're reacting to, the fireworks, whatever it is. Yeah, 4th of July, here we come. Here we come, get ready everyone. But then we might see a month down the line when we go back out to the gun range, the dog is flinching and that's where fear is just unbelievable how quickly it can spread within the animal. I know this from many, many clients, but even personally, my dog, my darn fire alarm, the battery ran out. and Oh the, no, the beeping. The beeping. And my dog got really scared. And literally within about a month, every, you know, the microwave, the oven, the, the FedEx truck, all those beepy noises, suddenly she became hypersensitive to them. And that's how fear can grab hold like that. And separation anxiety, I feel, is very, very similar. Interesting. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Hey, crew. Are you looking for the gold standard in canine DNA testing for your breed? Join the winning team at Embark and manage your dog's health, optimize your breeding program, and improve your litter's bloodlines. As the highest rated dog DNA test on the market, they have a lot in common with Westminster's most legendary champions. Plus, they know your breed like the back of their paw. Select ideal breeding pairs to support healthy pedigrees and lifelong care. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to help manage their breeding program from improving genetic health and diversity to screening for disease mutations, understanding traits, and more. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive canine DNA test, visit EmbarkVet.com and use code PUREDOGDOG to enjoy $20 off each kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGDOG. The world-class scientists and veterinary geneticists are standing by. Okay, so continuing on the genetics, we understand that as breeders, paying attention to not reproducing dogs with phobias is important because it is genetic. Is it then also modifiable if the owner has a dog that for whatever reason now is manifesting with some sort of phobia? I love this because I think it's, Maybe not everyone, particularly not people that are in the breeding group, but people think, oh, it's genetic, can't change it. That is absolutely, in this instance anyway, not true. Separation anxiety is actually a behavior that is quite modifiable. It's not easy and it takes time, but we can do a lot to optimize dogs for a long time success in the beginning of their lives or once they've been acquired by a new owner. But we can also, if it's outright a major problem and an owner is experiencing that, it's still modifiable. It's slow, but it is modifiable. And so just because there's that genetic potential predisposition there doesn't mean that we can't change. Heritability is not a diagnosis of permanent states. Okay, I like that. Doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to it when you breed. But, no. but for the owner, and you know, here's the thing about it. I say this all the time as a dog breeder. Mother nature is a wicked, wicked mistress. 
Indeed. And I did a breeding that had two of the soundest minded dogs and several of the puppies in the litter showed some anxiety levels that, I mean, I was able to go back and figure it out on the pedigree, but at first blush, I was shocked. I mean, literally shocked because there was no indication in the two individuals that was in my consciousness. Right. So I think as dog breeders, we just need to be aware that we can do the best we can. And we make these decisions and we make all these planning things. We plan for generations and generations and generations. And Mother Nature says, you silly little thing, you. That's right. I mean, pop-out behaviors are not unusual. And I'm not a breeder, but I mean, I have seen this. One of my first and very early experiences with a puppy that had separation anxiety was a breeder contacted me. And this was almost 10 years ago now. Breeder contacted me, which I thought was so, so beautiful of her to say, you know, I breed these dogs. They've all been sound. They're all wonderful. I've just had this new litter and I've got eight puppies and seven of the puppies are perfect. And one of the puppies who, by the way, is not the runt of the litter Mm -hmm. is freaking out every time I walk out of the room. Like what is going on here? And so we talked about it and we worked on it and we tried to help that puppy optimize. And we also decided that that puppy would end up going to someone that was prepared to manage it because it would be unfair to place that puppy with someone that's like, well, I work 10 hours a day and I'm gone. And I just, you know, I mean, not that we would anyway, but I know, but I think that's actually, it's a really great point for breeders who have this awareness because we all want to place the right dog in the right home. That's all what we're about. So being aware of some of these behaviors as we are placing puppies is critical and that there is a way, and Melinda's saying that she has had success in addressing it, mitigating it and placing it correctly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of people that are willing, ready and able to work with some behavior challenges from the get-go, as long as we're very transparent about what we have observed in that particular dog. And someone can say, I work from home. I don't go out that much for the first couple of months. I can do a lot of training until the dog's ready for me to actually go out for four hours or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Really, really, really good stuff. Now, as we're talking about these puppies, here's our next myth. Are they going to grow out of it? Are they just going to get better? I wish my answer was, you betcha, give them time, they'll grab it. Sure, you betcha. I don't know that I'd have a job, which would be okay (laughs) with me, but I don't know that I'd have a job if puppies just grew out of it. I think it's quite difficult to determine. We have to remember, separation anxiety behaviors are evolutionarily appropriate for puppies of a young age. Those behaviors... How many of us have seen a puppy cry and the bitch comes back and when they're very young, that is actually, we've seen it over millions of years of evolution, that there is a purpose for vocalization and some of these other behaviors when these pups are really, really young. But the majority of them do that portion, they do grow out of it. And if they don't, it becomes sort of maladaptive. And when it becomes maladaptive, in a 14 or 16 or 18 week pup, no amount of letting them cry it out and try and get over it is going to help them grow out of it. That is the moment in time where we say, no, we've got to give this pup 
some training and give them that metaphorical soft place to land in order to help them through this. I think it's important that we remember that because, you know, there are those very early stages where, yeah, puppies are going to cry. You guys all know this as breeders. They're hungry. They have to potty or they're cold or they're hot. Those are the things. That's right. I want, I want, I want, I need. For the first two weeks, it's one of those four things. That's exactly right. Okay. So we have just a couple minutes left and this was the one that we were going to try and fit in if we had a spot for it. So medication. Let's talk about the myths of if I have to medicate my dog or medication is terrible or blah, 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 blah. Let's think about medication and myth busting a little bit on that. Yeah. So, you know, I want to sort of express that I do have a little bit of a bias because I've been working with this issue for so many years. And there are a lot of dogs that I have seen whose welfare is truly compromised because of their separation anxiety. And I'm actually talking here about the dog, but let's remember, it's also the poor people. As I've said before, I've lived it. I know it. I get it. That's right. And I always worry when people say, oh, it's a cop out to medicate the dog. And that's just selfish because I don't want to have to deal with it. Well, let me tell you right out the gate, any FDA approved medication in the United States and actually outside of the U.S., but we'll talk about U.S., is only to be prescribed if doing concurrent behavior modification. As of this date, we have not even one medication that will sort of fix, if you will, separation anxiety. They are there to gain purchase. They're there to help, but they're not fixing it. They're not fixing it. And one of the things that I think is important, we were talking about genetics You know, as we are getting that closer understanding of these genetics, these biochemical pathways of behavior issues and all of that sort of thing, things like separation-related distress and anxiety are going to have the potential to get better targeted medications. And that means that these animals don't have to potentially suffer with this welfare issue, nor do the owners, Mm -hmm. but there will still be work to be done. And I think it's so important that people understand that. And I loved this. I learned this from a local vet behaviorist. She said, separation anxiety is a behavioral emergency. And what she meant by that was You know, if you have a dog that is got a diabetic problem, you don't wait until they're crashing with their diabetic disorder before you administer a medication. And that's the same with separation anxiety. We don't wait until we're like, well, you know, now they're drooling and freaking out and jumping out windows. I guess we should consider medication. Like, no, actually, it's a behavioral emergency. It's actual an emergency that we need to address quite frankly, sooner rather than later. And the great news is, is that these medications for most dogs, I can't say for every dog, but for most dogs are not lifetime medications. They can actually wean off of them after they have experienced behavior modification that has brought them to a point that they can be left alone successfully. I like it. I like it. You know, I want to go back. We have like one minute left, but I'm kind of obsessing about something you said earlier. Talking about the crying when left behavior as an evolutionarily appropriate thing and thinking about that. And as a dog breeder, you know, we play God a little bit. That's part of what we do. We're focused on, I want this behavior. I want that behavior in a 
untouched natural form, a dog that couldn't be left wouldn't live. It would cry and it would get eaten. Yes and no. It would cry, but the evolutionarily appropriate behavior is when there is the potential for peril, I vocalize so that I can be reunited with my yes. siblings or with my bitch. But when you reach a certain point in your development, oh, mom isn't absolutely. there to save you and you cry. You've just brought in the predator. Predator. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's why it becomes a maladaptive issue. And so important for breeders to pay attention to. Very much. Because we have to pay attention to this. If we allow it to go forward in a maladaptive, if you will, behavior, then we need to take that responsibility. I think that is like super important for people to hear and understand. Yeah, I really agree with you. And I think, you know, as breeders, you're in such a wonderful position to be able to observe these pups from little potatoes on day one. Potatoes is the best day. It's the best. And be able to observe their behavior and see how they respond to the world and the environment. And you will notice differences. And it has to do too with what bitch am I going to breed? What stud dog am I going to breed or two? Those breeding decisions impact. So it's not just the puppies, but the decisions you make before you breed them. Oh, absolutely. And that is profound. I'm so glad you brought that up. No, but it's serious because the other piece of it, the epigenetics piece is a bitch who's reactive is going to have raised puppies who are reactive. Right. That is another piece of the epigenetics. There's so much that comes from the dam. So as breeders, it is critical for us to understand the information and the knowledge that you're presenting here so that we can make good choices about the animals that we include in our breeding programs. I love that. And I so agree with that. There's all sorts of brilliant things that breeders do about screening for hips and doing all these sort of things. But to me, this one is a big one, too. I'm not going to lie to you. I kind of agree with you. (laughs) Mental health goes with physical health, guys. That's exactly right. And I mean, you can have the most beautiful, well-bred dog physically, but if they are suffering from a welfare perspective because of their mental health, that's a problem. It is a problem. All right, Melina, thank you so much. This has been invaluable. I love myth busting with you. I love it. And I can almost guarantee you audience that somewhere, somewhere down the road, you're going to get to hear more from Melina. I think we're going to have to make that happen. So that's great. Excellent. All right, crew. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you. To make sense out of everyday things. To add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. One of my favorite events over the last year or so has been the virtual After Dark for patrons of the podcast. Anybody can join this amazing community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking the Become a Patron link on the homepage. While you're there zooming around on the site, you can check out our shopping tab too. There's even a Pure Dog Talk swag link. Who knew? Share the love with all our cool gear. Check it all out at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. Hey, 
As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 